Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, just thank you as, uh, as we get to see a little glimpse today of, uh, of what you're doing here and around the world. Lord, we pray for our, our, our Mexico mission team. And Lord, we thank you for this partnership with Light Shine and reaching unreached people groups in Chihuahua. And Lord, thank you for that, the blessing of including us uh, in your mission. Lord, we pray your, your blessing uh, on the team there. Uh, and, uh, and then, Lord, here as well, Lord, as even now as we come to your, to your word, Lord, we ask for your blessing on this time, too, Lord, that you would use, use these moments we have together, Lord, you would equip us by your word uh, to, to live for you, to represent you, to be, to be the church you call us to be in this world that desperately needs to hear that you are a savior. So, Lord, do this in our midst, for your glory. Amen. Amen. So we are pausing our Corinthians study for, for two weeks. As we've been doing kind of time, time and time again, as we kind of come across topics in Corinthians that we're like, huh, we should talk about this some more. We, we do that. And so you know, if you've been here the last two weeks, you know how Pastor Don and Pastor Greg and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, sort of, uh, we, we came up with this issue in Corinthians about differing consciences and people disagreeing with one another. And, and boy, does that maybe feel relevant in our, in our day and age. Uh, that, you know, we, we, of course, we all feel this. We live in a, in a divided and fractured age, increasingly so. Uh, it's on social media, it's on the news, it's in your families, um, different, differing political opinions, differing, differing opinions on, on, on everything, and increasingly feeling at odds with people that maybe a couple years ago you'd have been like, I thought we were on the same team, and now it doesn't seem that way anymore. Like, and, so, and those same divisions that run everywhere through our culture run right through the church as well, because we're people. We're people, we're part of, part of the culture, and so we bring our baggage right into the church. Uh, and so those same divisions um, here at Grace, across the country, every church dealing with, all right, how do we live out the gospel? How do we apply these things when, when we, people have really strong opinions on what to do? And so this is not a new issue. This is Paul's addressing this in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And so we've seen that in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 9. And what we want to do for this week and next week uh, is take a little detour to Romans 14 and 15. Uh, because Romans 14 and 15 really is Paul talking about the same, the same exact issue that he's talking in, to, to the Corinthians about of differing consciences and how do we get along. So we're, we're calling this little mini-series just simply... I'm right, you're wrong, now what? Uh, and that is the question, isn't it? Uh, because pick an issue, pick any issue. I'm right, you're wrong. What do we do? And so in Romans, so in Corinthians, as we've seen, you know, Corinthians is a church with all kinds of problems. People bringing their Corinthian cultural baggage into the church and Paul having to help them navigate through this mess. But one of the, the fundamental issues facing the Corinthians is that they just don't know how to love one another very well. 
And so as they are squabbling about these issues, Paul is bringing them back in chapter 8 to, guys, love lays down its freedoms, its rights. Um, Chapter 9, we saw Paul talking about his own example of that, of of him laying down his rights for the sake of the gospel. We're going to see this in chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, the famous 1 Corinthians 13 love chapter. This is going to be what Paul's focusing on for the rest of the letter, of how... (laughs) How do we love each other better? Now, in Romans, in Romans, uh, he kind of, Paul comes at this from a slightly different angle, even though he arrives at the same place, but some of the same even language that he's using in Corinth. In, in Romans, if you've read Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, this letter to the Romans is just this majestic unpacking of the good news of Jesus. It's, it's the greatest letter ever written uh, as Paul lays out the, the human problem of sin, rebellion against God, how God has met that need in Christ and with grace and with love, how he's freed us from captivity to sin and captivity to, to the law, how we have a new way to live by his spirit in us, how he's building this new people, this new community of God's people, the church. There's just so much amazing depth of truth in Romans, so much gospel good news. And then in Romans, we, after that unpacking of 11 chapters of gospel, and this is what God has done, in chapter 12, Paul finally gets to uh, the, the big therefore. Now, in light of all of that, in light of that gospel doctrine, how do we now build a gospel culture in the church? And so Romans 12, 13, 14, 15 is that. It's how does that gospel doctrine create gospel culture? How does that gospel get into the way we live, the way we treat one another, the way we represent him? It's love must be, love must be genuine. It means lay down your grievances against one another. It means submit to one another. And when we come to Romans 14, it's this issue. It's how to disagree with one another. How to disagree is what Romans 14 is all about. And so this, uh, and Paul is going to, is going to really, the same, the same emphasis that we saw in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 is, is the emphasis here. Um, the, the big idea, if you want the big idea, it's simply this. It's that love means laying down my rights and freedoms. That love means laying down my rights and freedoms. So we're going to see here in Romans 14. So the, the way that I want to approach this chapter, because there's, so there's so much here. We could probably make this like a five or six week study, but then we'd, just, we'd never finish <laughs> Corinthians. So, so instead, I want us to do kind of a flyby of Romans 14, and then next week we're going to come back to Romans 15, see how Paul wraps this up. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the whole chapter for you. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans 14. We're going to put it up on the screen here. I want us to kind of step back at the big picture, Paul's whole, the, the whole chapter, and then we're going to go back, and I just want to pull out some principles here, some, the principles that Paul lays down. I'm going to give us five principles of how to disagree with one another. And so what Paul does here is very similar, again, to, to 
to Corinth, what he says to the Corinthians, that he's going to give us two conscience categories. He's going to call them the, the, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And we're going to see what that means. We're going to unpack that. Uh, but these two categories of, of one person who's more restrictive in their conscience and one person who feels more liberated in their conscience. And we're going to see how does love navigate that difference. So this chapter is not going to be so much about who's right and who's wrong. In fact, that's really secondary to the point that Paul is going to make. The point is, these two people who disagree, how, how do they navigate that in love? So this is Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person, this is the strong person we'll talk about, believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. <laughs> Can I say that's the funnest, ver the most fun verse to take out of context? <laughs> that's not what it means. <laughs> The weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether then we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. That faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. A whole lot there, like I said. This could be multiple weeks, but, but you probably you picked up on, on some things. He talked a lot about passing judgment on one another, right? Because that's sort of our default when we disagree, when we say, I'm right, you're wrong, uh, is, we're, is we start passing judgment on, on one another. And then you heard a lot about this kind of eating and drinking and food and days and the issues that, that we're going to see in a minute. The issues he's picking up are differences over how to live out the Old Testament law. Um, but it's these differences of how do I apply God's commands that we're going to see is super relevant even for us today. So five principles that I want us to, to see, to draw from, from this passage. And as we go through these principles, I, I'd like you to, to do something that I think will, will help make this even more relevant. I would like you to think right now of some divisive issue that you have a firm stand on. You know, some, something you know, that people disagree about that you're like, I, I, I'm here. Like, I don't know I'm in this camp. I'd like you to take that and put it in your mind and hold on to it. Because as we go, I'd like you to think, okay, how do these principles apply to this thing? Here's the first principle. First principle that we're going to see here just in, these first, in the first couple of verses is that it's really important Really important, as we're talking about disagreements in the church, it's important to know the difference between opinion versus conviction versus command. This is here on the, on the next slide here. This is our, our first, the first point here. Opinion versus conviction versus command. Really important to know the difference. Because, you know, sometimes, sometimes we disagree on what I'd call, like, matters of opinion, um, and, and what I mean by that, when I say opinion, what I mean is, is preferences that don't necessarily have any moral weight attached to them. Um, you know, uh, I am of the opinion that pizza is the greatest of all foods. Um, and uh, you, you, might, you might think, for some reason, that you might think another food is better. I mean, you'd be wrong, of course. <laughs> but, but even in your wrongness, there's not really any moral weight attached to that. that it's, it's, just a, it's just a preference. I like pizza. You're not, and you're not a sinner because you don't like pizza. Now, it's really important, a really important, I think, necessary clarification as we look at this text. Um, because by, by using the word opinion like that, I've actually kind of muddied the waters here. Because you'll see in verse 1, when Paul says welcome this weak person but not to quarrel over opinions. The problem here is that I, th I think that's a poor translation of, of the word, the Greek word that Paul is using here. Um, I, I don't think that that translation actually helps us understand this passage uh, because the Greek word that Paul uses here when, when in your Bible it says don't quarrel over opinions, the Greek word there doesn't mean a preference with no moral weight, like pizza. It, the word means 
inward reasoning to arrive at a firm conclusion. That's kind of the, the, the Greek dictionary definition of the word he uses. So I, I think a better translation here, is it sacrilegious to tell, me to, to tell you to scratch out opinion and write a different word here? A better translation of the Greek word here, I think, is conviction. That really gets better in how we use these words, gets better at the heart of what Paul means. He says, don't quarrel over convictions. Because I see a conviction is an opinion that does carry a moral weight. It, it takes a side as to whether this is right or wrong. You know, so, so pizza being the best food is just an opinion with no moral weight. But let's take something else, something different, and maybe we'll pick an example that this is still maybe relatively easy to parse out. Um, let's say that you believe that you should only listen to Christian music. Now, that might not be you know, your, your issue, or maybe it is. I'm, the only reason I'm picking this is because I think this is relatively easy to parse out maps well with, with where Paul is going. Um, that's a conviction. Because now there's a moral dimension to it. You're saying, you're saying that I feel like I should do this. Because there's this moral weight in your mind, because maybe, maybe in your mind, this is a way to honor God. Maybe for you, this is a way that you think about commands. You think about what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he says, whatever is true, whatever is pure, think about such things. And so for you, you say, okay, I, one of the ways I think I should apply that is I'm only going to listen to 95.1 Shine FM. Now, I'm not commenting on the merits of that one way or another. I'm just using this as an example. Because what a conviction is, it, it, it's an application of a command or it's a principle applied to a situation that leads you to say, this is what I should do. That, that's what a conviction is. It's when you're thinking about what does God command, how do I apply that here. And so now the, the thing about convictions is that hopefully it's at least theoretically clear that, that people can arrive at different places with those convictions. And really that, that's what this whole chapter is about. That's why I'm, I'm spending a little more time on this one because this is so central to understand the chapter. What Paul is talking about is these convictions, these more, this, this opinion with moral weight that I have that I say, I think this is right. And you say, I think this is right. What do we do? And so an opinion is a preference with no moral weight. A conviction is a moral belief based on application of a command. So let's talk about commands for a second. I, I said it's really important to know the difference between opinion and conviction and command. command. A command is when God says in his word, do this, or don't do this. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Just boom, like, that's it. Don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. Command. Or maybe, let's go back to the example I was just using. Philippians 4.8, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, think about such things. That's a command. That, that's an imperative. It means that's binding on all believers at all times. This is God's will for you. That whatever is true, honorable, pure, that you are to think about such things. And so commands in one sense are, are really clear. And sometimes the application of those commands is really clear. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. Clear application there. Don't do that. But often, application of those commands can be tricky, uh, even when the command is clear. Because don't commit adultery. Okay, well... Now I start thinking, how do I apply this? What are some wise and unwise ways to approach relationships with people who aren't my spouse? What are, what are some good boundaries? What are lines I shouldn't cross? And, and you see, all of a sudden, we're still talking about the command, but now we have moved into the realm of, of conviction, of application of that command, how that command should be worked out in all the details of my life. And that's where different people land in different places. Those are the different kinds of convictions Romans 14 is talking about. One person in saying, okay, don't commit adultery, so I am never going to be in a room with a woman who is not my wife. Sort of the, the Billy Graham rule, as, as it were. That's one conviction, or you might have someone over here saying, saying, I don't think I need to do X, Y, and Z. I think that I can you know, approach that situation differently. That's a conviction. What do these two people do now? They disagree. So that's what's going on here in Romans 14. And Paul picks, these two, picks two examples as illustrations and that you can see in verses 1 and verses 5. He said, in verse 1, he says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And in verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. So the, the issue he's talking about here, in verse 1, he's, he's not talking about vegetarianism as, as we would think about it today. Kelly, sorry, <laughs> he's not saying that you're weak because you eat, veg because you eat veggies all the time. Um, the issue there, and in verse 5, is convictions around Old Testament law. In verse 1, it's convictions around Jewish dietary restrictions, you know, the kosher laws, things like that. You know, you've heard of keeping kosher, you know, don't eat pig, bacon, that kind of stuff. And verse 5, it's convictions around the Jewish ceremonials calendar, like the Sabbath, the command, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Now, the thing is, neither of those issues are probably hot-button topics that we really wrestle with here. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe in our con, maybe some of you wrestle with how to apply those. But those were hot-button topics in Paul's day. As the gospel moved beyond its Jewish, immediate Jewish context, as he's writing to this new church in Rome full of Jews and Gentiles living together, these were the hot-button issues of the day. And seeing how Paul navigates how 
these convictions, how, we to, how we're to live with these convictions, I think that's really going to help us with our hot button issues. And so you have in this Roman church people wrestling with a clear command but applying it differently. And so verse 1, in the kosher laws, you have one person saying, I can eat anything. The new covenant and the coming of Christ have transformed these categories of clean and unclean, and so I can honor God and I can eat anything. I'm going to go have a bacon cheeseburger. The other person says, eats only vegetables. And now it's interesting. Nowhere in the kosher laws does it say you have to only eat vegetables. Rather, this person is applying the command, but doing that, so doing that conviction thing, and they're applying it in a more restrictive way. They're saying, I really want to honor God in this way, and so I think the best way to do that is to avoid all these problematic categories, and so I'm only going to eat vegetables. That, that's where these two camps are landing. It's... It's kind of like the example from, that I gave earlier, the person who says, I really want to honor that command, whatever's true, pure, holy, so I'm only going to listen to Christian music. Do you see the parallel? It's, they take this command, and this, this person repl- uh, applies that command more restrictively. It's like taking the command, don't commit adultery, and I'm going to apply that in, with the Billy Graham rule. It's the more restrictive application versus the more freedom application. And that's why I used that earlier. I think it's an easy modern example of this. And so the other example that Paul uses, the Sabbath, it's just the same. He just, it's the same issue again. One person says, Christ has transformed this category, now all days are holy. And the other person says, no, this day is better which, again, is not exactly what the commandment says. The commandment says, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. It doesn't mean it doesn't say it's better, but this person is like, I'm, I want to approach this as something different than all the other days. So most of the things that we disagree about as believers fall into this category of convictions. I mean, we can joke about whether pizza is the best food or not. And I think for the most part, we're pretty clear on the commands. It's this conviction stuff where it gets all tricky. How to apply God's commands. What's the best way to live this out? And one of the problems, one of the problems we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians and here in Romans is that we have this innate human tendency to keep elevating our convictions to the level of God's commands. This is really subtle, and we all have this sort of built-in legalist in us, this tendency, to take, this tendency for me to take my application of a command and to say, this is the right way to do this. And this is what all believers at all times should do. So, so, we, t- so like I, we take the conviction, I should only listen to Christian music, and that turns into, and it can turn very subtly into, you are sinning listening to fill-in-the-blank music. It happens subtly. And that's how disagreements turn into divisions. 
And this is the problem Romans 14 addresses. And so this first principle, so important, know the difference between opinions and convictions and commands. And I would and just add, and maybe be very careful, very wary of the tendency to elevate convictions into commands. Like doubt your judgment there because our pride easily deceives us. Now, so that's first principle. Second principle sort of now flows, flows out of that. If I have this conviction and you have this differing conviction, what, what does love look like in that disagreement? What does love look like here? This is, this is important. Uh, elsewhere in, in, in the Bible, I, uh, I think it's Paul, he says, he says, the aim of all of our instruction, all this doctrine, he says, is love. He says, all of this should be aiming towards creating people who love one another. Jesus said, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. This is a first order issue of loving one another well. So what does love look like when we disagree? When, I, when my conscience says this and your conscience says this, how do we navigate that together? And the way that Paul lays this out is... I think just perfectly, brilliantly suited to the particular temptations facing the two camps. The, of these two camps of the person who feels more restrictive in their conscience and the person who feels more free in their conscience. He says, he says here, verse, verse three, let not that one who eats, the, the person who feels more free, say, yeah, I can eat, that's fine. Let them not despise the one who abstains. And let not that one who abstains, who's more, who's more restrictive in their conscience, pass judgment on that one who eats. It's you free person, don't despise the more restrictive person. Restrictive person, don't judge the more free person. And this is just perfectly perfectly situated advice for these two camps because that person who feels more free if you so if you think about whatever issue that you feel strongly about if that if that's you if if you kind of fit into that camp that you're like I think that this is okay for me to do why are you guys all hot and bothered about this the temptation in your heart when you think about the people on the other side of the fence is to despise them, to say, ah, those judgmental Pharisees, those narrow-minded fundamentalists, you despise the person on the other side of the fence. And what about the person on the other side of the fence who is more restrictive in their conscience? What are they tempted to do? Judge. To see you doing this stuff and they're going to they're gonna assume motives and you're going to pronounce guilt. You're going to say, you're doing what I would and therefore that must be sin, guilty. This, this is what we do, both sides. And what Paul is saying is, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Both sides here, the strong, free, or the weak, restrictive, we'll get to why he talks about strong and weak here, but both sides are guilty 
of elevating their convictions to that level of command and then holding the other side accountable to their conscience. And that's pride. And 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter that's always read at, at, uh, at weddings, says love is not arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. Love believes all things. That means assumes the best about the other person. And I, I, think, I think that we should just let this principle rest on our souls a little bit. Because I think many of us, and myself, oh, myself included, uh, are, are guilty of this. Remember I told you, well, take that hot button issue that you have a firm stand on and think about it. How do you think about those who hold a different conviction than you on that issue? How do, you, how do you feel in your heart about people in this room who hold a different conviction than you on that issue? Do you look down on them? Do you judge their motives? Sort of dislike them as a person because of this issue? Uh, have you, un, you know, unfriended them on Facebook? Do you avoid them when you're in person because of this? And, and listen, some, some of that may be due to sin on their part, you know, holding this position belligerently or rudely, like, yeah, I get that. But even then, what does love look like on your part? Love is patient. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears and endures all things. So let, just let me be really clear. I want this to rest on us with the weight that it should. This kind of love is not optional for followers of Christ. In our divided partisan age, this kind of love is not optional. And so if you find, as so often I do, you find that in your heart you are standing in judgment on your brothers or sisters, despising your brothers or sisters in your heart, you are sinning. Stop. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. This, this one's hard for me because I have strong convictions on lots of things. And I am in so many ways an arrogant and unloving person. All I have to do is read Romans 14 to see that. And so let our response to that be not, you know, the, the, the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How often do you find yourself in the position of the Pharisee saying, God, thank you that I'm not like that person? Instead, if that's exposed, if God's even right now laying his finger on your heart in that issue, let's be the tax collector and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Because he does. He does have mercy. He has, he has mercy to pardon me, and he has mercy to strengthen me to love like he does. And so, so church, we've, we've got to do this. And look at, look at this. You want, you want some, some gospel foundation. You want some mercy and grace. Look at, look at this. When he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for because God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. These, if these divisions are a really good test of whether we really believe our gospel. Does God welcome the people who are wrong? Does God welcome people who are different than you, who vote differently than you, who approach life differently than you, who think about issues differently than you? This is the very gospel itself. <clears throat> this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the good news of our salvation. God welcomes people who are wrong. And how do I know this? Because he's welcomed me. <laughs> he's welcomed you. God has welcomed us, and he welcomes us, not on the basis of our rightness, but because of Christ. Because Jesus went to the cross for all my wrongness, for all of, for all of my <coughs> wrong judgments, for all the ways that I despise my brothers and sisters. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> oh. He has welcomed he has welcomed me in spite of my sin, in spite of my rebellion, in spite of just all of the ways that I do exactly what Romans 14 tells me not to do. And all of that was put on the cross, and he took the punishment for it all so that I could be free, so that you could be free. This is good news, church. And so this is what love looks like. Third principle, more quickly, we're going to keep each principle is going to get a little bit easier. What does humility look like? And simply this, is that humility lets God be right. I don't have to be right. Humility lets God be right. Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, that person you disagree with, who is trying to live out their conscience and you think they're wrong, they might actually be. Like, you might be right there, that, that you're right. You might be right and they might actually be wrong. But here's the thing. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Let, they'll stand before God. God will work that out with them. And, he's, and, and he'll, he is perfectly able to work out all these things perfectly. We don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner. Isn't that a relief? And in verse 10, he says, why do you, why do you, again, why do you pass judgment on your brother? He says, again, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll all give an account to God. So just let, let God be right. You don't have to be the police. Like that's, that, that, that's good news. <laughs> like be free. 
You don't have to be right. And even, you don't even have to necessarily convince the other person. I mean, of course, we can have these discussions. We should talk about differences of conviction. We should be open to be able to, to talk about that in a safe place from love. But Paul also says this. He says, he says in verse 5, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Even though on these very issues, Paul takes some strong stands. Paul, he goes on and says, he says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that this camp over here is right. But he says, look, person over there, be fully convinced in your own mind. If you have that conviction, hold to it. And I think that approaching this from a place of humility, I think it just means that we're all in process here. Just think about it. Some of the convictions that you have today are not ones that you had 10 years ago. And maybe some of those convictions are not ones that you're going to hold 10 years from now. We're, we're just in process. And God has different people at different places. You might be here and someone might be a year or two behind you. Or you might be a year or two behind them. And humility recognizes that. And humility is okay with that. Because humility, humility says, I don't have to be right all the time. God can be right. And just leaves it at that. Now, fourth principle here, because these first three sort of leave us in this, okay, this tension of, okay, you be convinced over here, you be convinced over here, and we're going to get along, which is really the main emphasis of this text, is how to love one another well. But Paul does give some gentle nudges to kind of both, both sides here. And so this fourth, this, this fourth principle is, let your conscience be guided by the gospel. Because uh, it's, it's so interesting to, to really think about this. This is why we could spend so much more time on this, because it's sort of remarkable to think about Paul saying, be convinced in your own mind, and in the same breath saying, but I know that I'm right over here. And he goes on to say, because if you violate that conscience, you can, you're convinced this is how to honor God and you violate that, he says that's actually sin because you're not acting out of faith. And so it's, it's remarkable the, the emphasis that he puts on, on conscience here. But he's going to nudge the strong conscience and the weak conscience here a little bit. And I think the way he nudges the weak conscience is actually by using these terms weak and strong. <clears throat> now, as, uh, as Don pointed out two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 8, these are not qualitative judgment statements. He's not saying that, that the strong is, that is better than the weak or the weak is better than the strong. He's not saying one's right and one's wrong. <coughs> Excuse me, I really got something stuck in my throat here. Thanks for that water, Josh. Really, what this weak and strong means is when he says the person who's weak, the weak person in Paul's framework is the more restrictive one. And the strong in his framework is the one with the more free conscience. You can see that. The, the, the weak, the, the one person believes he can eat anything is more free. The weak person is only vegetables. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 8 
as well, too. It says that the weak person kind of in this issue of food offered to idols is more restricted in their conscience. And I, I think this is interesting. I, I, this is what I sat around and pondered all week. I really would have thought it would be the other way around. I would have thought that the strong conscience is the one that has more rules. Or at least that's what makes sense to my legalistic brain. Because see, a lot of times, I think we, we pride ourselves on our rules, right? That, you know, I don't listen to that music. I don't watch that TV show. I do read my Bible every day. And we kind of have our rules that we end up defining our holiness by. And so in calling these different consciences strong and weak, again, Paul's not making a moral judgment that one is wrong. Because he says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And he says, and says, you remember, he says that the strong and weak are both honoring the Lord. They're trying to honor the Lord as best they can in different ways. However, in labeling the restrictive conscience weak, Paul is gently nudging at our tendency towards legalism. And he's saying, hey, you who have a more restrictive conscience, that's fine. Obey that. Honor that. It's like, but hey, I want you to have a stronger grasp on the gospel. I want you to have a deeper appreciation of your freedom in Christ. That you're free, child of God. Grow in that freedom. And so just this, this, gentle, this gentle nudge that Paul is giving in his categories of saying growing in Christ probably doesn't look like adding more and more rules to your life. Because sometimes we think that's what maturity is, that we have more and more and more rules. And I, I think Paul would disagree. Paul would say maturity looks like more and more living in the freedom and grace and goodness of God from the, my heart out. So aim that way. Grow that way. And the fifth, the fifth principle here, this is how he's going to nudge the people on the other side, that love always trumps freedom. Because the gospel nudges the weak in the direction of freedom, but the gospel also nudges the strong in the direction of lay down yourself. Lay down your rights. The final principle just boils down to this, that love for your weaker brother or sister always trumps your freedom. Your, your freedom in Christ to have that more expansive conscience in this area and, do, and, and be more free to do what you want, love always lays that right down. Because that's what Jesus does for us. And, this, and Paul elaborates on this one a, a good bit. He says, he says I, I've decided never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, nothing's unclean. He's like, I'm firmly in that freedom camp over here. He says, but it is unclean if anyone thinks it's unclean. 
is if you violate your conscience, you, you say, I think this is how to honor God and I'm not going to do that. He says, like, that's sin. Honor God. And he says, if your brother is grieved by what you free person over here eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Strong words there. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And he says it again. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong. It's wrong to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And the call here for the, the free person, the strong conscience person, the call here is not to simply avoid offense. When he says cause your brother to stumble, he doesn't mean don't do anything that might ever offend anybody. Rather, the call is to avoid your behavior being something that would cause the other person to trip into sin, into violating their conscience. And whether that, may be, whether that would mean enticing them to violate their conscience, like, come on, it's no big deal, do it, it's fine. Or maybe it means by your example, as, as someone, like if they, they look to you as to say, how should I live this out? And your example is, is tripping them up. Paul says, man, lay that freedom down. It is your joy and privilege as a follower of the crucified Savior to lay down your rights. That's what love looks like. So, so these five principles, again, there's so much more in the text that, that we could unpack. But the, these five principles, you can, you can go to the next, the next slide. So, these, so kind of in summary here. Because what I want to do now in these last couple minutes is, um, is I don't want to just leave these dangling out here. I want to, uh, let's, let's apply these. Let's take the last couple minutes to apply these with two easy applications and an application that's more challenging. So these five principles, know the difference between opinions, convictions, and commands. What does love look like in our disagreements? What does humility look like in our disagreements? Let your conscience be guided by the gospel, and love always trumps freedom. Let's take an easy example. This is an example, actually, that Don referred to two weeks ago. Let's talk about alcohol. This is, this is a pretty straightforward one. Some people say, I think it's okay to have a glass of wine with dinner. Other people, for, for various reasons, for experiences, for their temptations, for, you know, recovering alcoholic, you know, whatever. There could be lots of reasons. And says, no, I, can't, I, I can't do that. I, it, it would be wrong for me to drink. Two clear, e easy examples here of convictions playing out in different ways. And so, what does love look like? It means that the non-drinker shouldn't be judging the drinker as a drunkard and glutton. How could you possibly have a drink, you sinner? And the drinker shouldn't be like, you pathetic weakling, come have a drink. Simple, right? And humility recognizes God has me in a different place than he has you. And as these weak and strong try to, try to navigate this, 
especially over here, the person who maybe feels free to drink, love Trump's freedom. And so if you're having him over for dinner, you're free to have a glass of wine, but maybe that wouldn't be helpful to the recovering alcoholic, your brother. By what you drink, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so there, prob- probably the simple thing is, is for you to say, before they even come over to say, man, it is my privilege to put away the alcohol. And we're gonna drink water with our meal today and not even make a big deal out of it. Easy example there. Relatively easy application. Another easy application from a different direction is because there are, not everything does fall into the area of conviction, right? Like there are commands. And so let's take that don't commit adultery one. You as being free in Christ and living in grace, you do not have the freedom to say, well, I think I'm going to sleep with someone who's not my spouse. Like you, you don't have the freedom to disregard a clear command. That, that still does apply to you. And, and so even though I think in our context, the, the danger is probably more that we tend to elevate our convictions to the level of commands, there is danger on the flip side, too, of taking commands and downgrading them to say, well, that's just your conviction. Don't do that. <laughs> and so the clear commands of Scripture stand as God's will for his people to be holy And he gives grace to empower you to obey them, not grace to disregard them. So clear example there on the other other side. Now a challenging one. This is challenging because sometimes, sometimes the application of these principles is clear. The alcohol one is just kind of like, well, you can just kind of work through the issues. Sometimes there, and as you navigate a situation, there are competing issues, or there are different levels to a thing. And as you try to navigate it and say, well, what is, how am I supposed to, to live this out? It gets complicated. So I'm going to just pick one of the big ones. Let's talk for a second about masks. <laughs> all right, now, right now, all of a sudden, everyone in the room is mad at me. <laughs> so <laughs> regardless of where you are in this, everyone's now mad at me. Let's, so first, here's what I want to do. First, I I want to talk, like, give, actually walk through this to say, this is actually complicated. There's not actually some super easy, clear, obviously we should do this. And so I want to, like, walk through maybe why we're all so divided on this. Uh, And then say, okay, but even in that, what does love look like? What does Romans 14 look like? Because on one hand, so you have you know, the, two, the, the, the two camps of the we should wear masks and we should not wear the masks. <laughs> Seems simple enough. Uh, but these, and both camps in the, especially in the extremes on both sides, are operating out of a conviction here of, of applying certain commands and principles to say, I think this is how we should 
walk this out. One side says, says, I think the command, love your neighbor as yourself, means that I should do whatever I can to avoid putting someone else at risk. The other side says, says, I think that the command, love your neighbor as yourself, means, for example, that that this is a barrier to our community. This is getting in the way of our, fe- our, our fellowship. We're living in fear. We're, um, you know, th- th- lots of things. I'm not trying to summarize perfectly one side or another. One side views the virus as more of a concern than government overreach. One side views government overreach as more of a concern than the virus. And so there's even, so you can see there's different principles applied to this, and then the context comes in at a whole other level and say, what's, the, what's more concerning, this or this? And they disagree on that too. And so it's, in this situation, it's not quite so simple as one falls into the strong category and one falls into the weak category. Again, those aren't moral judgments, um, but in some ways, in some ways, both sides here are are sort of the weak category because they're operating out of different restrictions. One side f- feels restricted to put on this mask for these moral reasons. One side feels restricted to take it off for these moral reasons. What do you do with that? <laughs> like, that's not here in Romans 14. Um, and, and so... It's complicated, right? It's not, there, there's not a super simple, nice little answer. And, and so please, if I, if I feel like I misrepresented one side or the other, that was not my intention. I'm just trying to use this as an example of saying how different sides are applying convictions differently. So how then should we live? What does love look like in our disagreements? Maybe it says, person who wears the mask, maybe the other side, maybe you shouldn't despise and pass judgment on the other side as being selfish and hard-hearted. And the side who, who says we shouldn't wear masks, maybe it means Don't pass judgment and despise the other side as being captive to fear. Love believes all things. Love assumes the best. And love tries its best to navigate, like what does love trumping freedom look like here? That's, that's challenging, too, um, because it's not even just that one side. It, it'd be nice. It, it'd even be easier if, if one side was like, I'm not going to wear a mask, and the other side was like, I'm going to wear a mask, and we just leave it at that. The problem is that one side, in their conviction, feels, feels that, that my mask protects you, but your mask protects me. I'm not comfortable if you're not wearing your mask. Whose freedom, whose love trumps what freedom? <laughs> this is why it's complicated. This is why we have disagreements. And this is why we've got to work so hard at loving one another. 
And so this is why, as a church, that the way that we've tried to navigate through this is saying we're Romans 13 following government mandates, but we're trying to create space for these different consciences, whether you know, it's in the tent or in here or up in the balcony. We're really trying to balance this. Have we done it perfectly? Probably not. Have we made mistakes? Probably. Uh, but as we walk forward together, Jeez, looks like this is relevant again. <laughs> God have mercy, right? <laughs> it's the last thing we, we wanted was for this, both sides. The last thing maybe both sides can agree on is that, is that we did not want this discussion to be relevant again. But here we are. What's it going to look like going forward? I don't know. But let's keep asking ourselves, what does love look like here? What does humility look like? look like here? What does it look like to be guided by the gospel? What does it look like to lay down my rights? If I could have the, the worship team come forward, because this is, this is, it is hard to love well. It is hard to disagree well, whether it's this or the host of whatever other issue you have in your mind. And so what it should drive us back to again and again and again is, oh, Lord, we need your help. Maybe that's something, what does humility look like? Saying, Lord, we need you. We need your help. We need your grace to guide us because so often we are wrong. And so we're going to sing this, this closing song, Lord, I need you. And here's, here's what I'd like you to do. Is whether it's this mask issue or whether it's whatever other issue you've been holding in your mind like I told you to that you feel strongly about. As we sing, I want you to bring that before the Lord. and Just open hands, Lord, I need you here. I need your grace to help me love well. I need your grace to help me obey. Every hour, I need you. Because that is the only way that we're gonna get through together. Is if we are saying, Jesus, I'm wrong, but you are always right. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Lord, I need you. So let's stand and let's declare that together.